Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Tomorrow is Veterans Day, a complex holiday for people who've served in the military and those who have not. So today, we talk with Wall Street Journal reporter Ben Kessling. He left Harvard's Divinity School for the Marines and was deployed to the theaters of the so-called Global War on Terror. Kessling has a new book, Bravo Company, that tells the story of one team of 82nd Airborne paratroopers, their deployment to Afghanistan, and their struggles on their return home. We're going to talk about the wars, about the unknowables of combat, and what new possibilities for healing might exist when veterans come together in community. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As with previous wars, many veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan have struggled to return to civilian life. Some were grievously injured in IED attacks. For others, the scars of combat are more internal than external. The difficulties did not fall equally on all those deployed. Some outfits, like the group of Army paratroopers profiled in Ben Kessling's book Bravo Company, took severe and compounding losses. In the combat zone, three men died, a dozen lost a limb, half the company received Purple Hearts. But then they went home and lost two more people to suicide and many others attempted to take their own lives, even in this era where we're supposed to know so much more about mental health. Here to tell us their story and the road they've been on as a group towards healing, we've got Ben Kessling, Midwest correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Welcome. Thanks, Alexis. Good to be here. So I want to start with where I understand this book project started, at a special kind of reunion for Bravo Company in a hotel (laughs) as part of a new pilot project called Operation Resiliency back a few years ago. Yeah, so I'm a I'm a U.S. Marine um, by uh, that was that was my service. I was an infantryman, and uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I started covering the Pentagon and veterans for the Wall Street Journal. Well, in 2019, I heard about a reunion that was happening for the Men of Bravo Company, and what they did was they came together a decade after their service uh, in the Argandab Valley in Afghanistan, and they came together for a novel approach that the VA was going to try, which was if we bring back as many people as possible for a unit reunion and then staff that reunion with folks from the VA, clinicians, and folks who can help them unpack war stories and jokes because uh, reunions, they they happen all the time and uh, they often devolve into war stories and jokes and there's not a whole lot of depth 
that can come from that sometimes. Well, the VA said, look, we're going to help them unpack all those memories, all those stories, and we're going to provide some clinical, clinical arms around them uh, and bring them together as, as a unit, as a group, as a brotherhood, and see if those interpersonal bonds can be rekindled and can be used in a way that uh, that any clinician, any counselor, any psychiatrist or psychologist is just not going to be able to have the same effect as as the men who deployed to their right and left. So that's how I first got introduced to Bravo Company. Yeah. And then after covering that reunion for the paper, uh, I realized there's a lot more to be done with this story. And so I followed them through their, I followed them through interviews uh, over the course of a couple years and talk about the time from when they raise their hand for that enlistment to going through going through training, going through workups for deployment, a harrowing deployment in Afghanistan, and then most importantly, I think, is I follow them for the ten years of trying to reckon with that afterwards. That leads us up to uh, up to that reunion and and even further into uh, into almost the present. Let's talk about how you raised your hand and ended up in that room. I mean, you'd gone to Northwestern, you know, Medill Journalism School. Masters at Harvard Divinity School. Did you think you were going to be a member of the clergy or a theologian, and then you just decided to go in the Marines? Like I was trying to, you know, make sense of that kind of swerve in your path. <laughs> right. Well, I I did go into the Marine Corps a little late in life uh, after going to Harvard Divinity School and getting a an, uh, Master of Divinity. Um, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I came from a very good uh, undergraduate school that had a, a fantastic religion program, Wabash College, and my mentors there um, taught me uh, taught me uh, an aspect of theology that I really hadn't been exposed to. It was a very humane theology. Um, one of my mentors, Bill Plaker, wrote a book called Narratives of a Vulnerable God, and his theology is based around the vulnerability of the divine. Um, and that it gives, it, it just was such a, such a fantastic, uh, fantastic theological and philosophical upbringing that I wanted to do something with it. I didn't know what, and I thought I was being pushed toward ministry. Um, went to Harvard, did three years there, um, was not the most fantastic student on the planet. And, um, and this was all happening as the wars in, uh, in Afghanistan were, were starting to heat up. And the war in Iraq kicked off while I was at Divinity School, and I realized, um, as a citizen, I felt that I needed to be a citizen soldier, and I needed to to do something to uh, to contribute to to the nation's effort, whatever that might be. And so uh, um, I joined the Marine Corps and served as a Marine Corps infantry officer. Did you feel like your faith and going to war were in conflict, or did it feel like it was coming from the same philosophical place in some way? Well, something that I've that I've learned over time, and again, my 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 uh, philosophical and theological upbringing at uh, in college and in grad school, made me realize the um, slowly come to realize that any sort of system, <laughs> a thought system, a belief system, is lived in real life. Right? You can't sit in an armchair and and try to try to figure out the way life works. No, it's it's all tied up in the messy, the messy and real um, work of the everyday. And so by the time I got to the Marine Corps, I was starting to really figure that out and to move away from some of the some of the ideas I had when I was younger, where you could extrapolate the way things should be by thinking through them and uh, and plugging into some sort of philosophical formula. No, like 
Life's lived in the trenches, you know, whether that's pastors, nurses, doctors, teachers, or soldiers. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I went into the Marine Corps, I realized that the, 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 the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, the beautiful are all inextricably tied up in God's creation. And, uh, and that, was, that informed my time as a, as a platoon commander, um, first in, in Iraq, um, in Fallujah, and, and trying to work through my subsequent career as a journalist after that. I mean, you ended up in Fallujah during the surge. Uh, for people who don't remember that particular period, what what was it like to be there? What like what were you actually doing day to day as a platoon commander? So uh, I was I deployed with Second Battalion, Six Marines, based out of Camp Lejeune, and I was a weapons platoon commander. And we went to Fallujah in 2007, as you said, during the during the surge, um, or this was during the Anbar Awakening. And uh, when we arrived in Fallujah, it was still what's known as a kinetic environment, which is um, there were units getting into firefights um, and there was still um, it, it wasn't like it was back in 2004, which is the Fallujah everybody has heard of and knows of. But it was still um, what's known as a kinetic environment. There were still things going on. And what we did halfway through that, about halfway through that deployment is we flowed into the city as units and set up uh, joint security stations. So essentially, um, think about it as police stations um, for, for Marine Corps units. So every few, every few blocks, they would have a Marine platoon set up and they would be there sort of as beat cops in a way. And through that, uh, through that, uh, as well as the locals, the local sheikhs deciding that they wanted to push back against uh, against Al Qaeda, um, the city be- went from a kinetic environment to a, to a more quiet environment, and it was almost this overwhelming overwhelming amount of, of force of presence and uh, and of money that was being pushed in for projects that calmed down the entire city. And when we left. I remember one of the last days that I that I walked uh, in in Fallujah, I was walking down the street and there were um, there were new solar powered uh, solar powered uh, streetlights that had been put up and people were walking in and out of our patrol. It was walk, like walking down the street and when we got there, there was a curfew in place and that would never have happened. So it had that whole trajectory during during my deployment in in Fallujah. Yeah, you know in that kinetic environment in the combat zone. What do you think you learned about yourself? I think that there is when when a person joins the military, they well most people <laughs> can't speak for everyone. But I think when people join the military, especially if you go into the infantry, you're expecting um you're expecting that sort of thing and um I wasn't able I did not experience it as much as many others did and actually um, get into this in, in Bravo Company, the book, a little bit as I talk about um, everybody's always trying to to measure their experience and figure out um, who did more and who did what. Um, I make no claims to have done anything fantastic or grand uh, during my time in in the Marine Corps, and um, I think that having been in um, been in an environment where someone has you know someone has shot at you um, or you're discovering IEDs in the ground or whatnot, you real you you discover whether or not you're able to you're able to to cope with those sorts of situations i think you're there's no way to know how you handle it. it's like a big football game or a big baseball game you don't know how you perform until that first pitch or that first snap and i think that's something that that um that all veterans um can probably relate to do you feel like you 
personally experienced trauma in your deployment? And if so, I mean, was writing this book your kind of journalist's way of processing that time? I say in the author's note of this book that the time that Bravo allowed me to, Bravo Company allowed me to spend with them was better than any therapist couch I could have found myself on. And I think that being in service, not even being in a combat zone or deployed, but being in the service, um, put some kind of a freight or a weight upon us. And having deployed uh, not just what you do in combat, but what you see in combat, the questions that you have when you get home, well, why was I there? Did I do a good job? Was the unit I was with, did we do a good job? What, what was the point of all this? Um, all those questions weigh upon a person, whether or not they recognize it. So in writing this book, it was a way for me to, to unpack some of that. Um, and the very important thing about it was a lot of people write about war and write about combat from a memoir perspective, right? Because uh, as human beings, we always think our story is the best one and we want to tell it, right? When you're at the bar, you want your turn to come around so you can tell your story. But in order to really unpack the, the depth of, of combat, of service, I think it was very important for me to tell other people's stories because in listening to them and having them unpack what they did and act as almost like an interpreter or a translator of their experience and writing about that in third person allowed me to really unpack a lot of the things that, that I knew or didn't know that I was carrying. And um, I think that's, that's true whenever we tell someone else's story with, with fidelity and when we open up our own, our own ears and our own hearts to truly listen to somebody else and what they have experienced, what they think is important, what they want to talk about. We're talking with Ben Kessling, Midwest correspondent with The Wall Street Journal, about his new book, Bravo Company, an Afghanistan deployment and its aftermath. We want to hear your stories, just like Ben was just talking about. Did you serve in the wars in Afghanistan or Iraq? And what was your experience like coming home? You can give us a call. Our number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I mean, if you are, but how do you rely on your community for healing and mental health support? Is it hard to find that community here in the Bay Area? You can let us know. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, and the emails forum at kqed.org. We're going to dive into Ben Kessling's book, Bravo Company, and Afghanistan Deployment and its Aftermath, right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
We're talking with Ben Kessling, Midwest correspondent with The Wall Street Journal, about his new book, Bravo Company, an Afghanistan deployment and its aftermath. We'd love to hear from you if you're a veteran of the wars in Afghanistan or Iraq. What was it like for you to come home, if you can share your story with us? The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or sometimes it's easier to write it out. The email is forum at kqed.org. So we need to talk a little bit about the context in which Bravo Company was deployed, both the big context of the global war on terror, quote-unquote, and also what was really happening in Afghanistan at the time. Can we let's talk first about how you saw then and how you see now what we ended up calling the war on terror? Yeah. And Alexis, that was uh, part of the writing this book. I did not expect to spend so much time trying to find out exactly why Bravo Company ended up where they ended up uh, in in this valley in Kandahar in uh, in Afghanistan, occupying a few a few square miles for months and um, to unpack that and to uh, and to try to find an answer to that, I had to sort of traverse my way all the way up uh, to where to the White House, you know, and to uh, into what was happening in 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 the war in Afghanistan at the time. So these guys deployed in two thousand nine, right? And Bravo Company, uh, a company is the army's like nesting dolls, right? Units stack within each other um, from the smallest level, which is the individual soldier. Then you have a fire team, a squad, a platoon, a company, a battalion, and then a brigade. Okay. A brigade is about 4,000 people. And a brigade is about the smallest piece on the strategic chessboard that the president can move around, uh, can say, okay, you know what? You guys are going to go to um, Iraq instead of Afghanistan, or you guys are going to go to Afghanistan instead of Iraq because we need some changes. Uh, and Bravo Company was far, part of Fourth Brigade. Now, Fourth Brigade was slated to go to Iraq uh, for this deployment, and they had been preparing to go to Iraq. But then the new president came into office, Barack Obama, and Barack Obama wanted to make sure that the Afghanistan strategy was his and his alone. And, you know, rightly so. He wanted to own it and he wanted to understand it. So he did a bunch of reviews to make sure that the inevitable surge into Afghanistan that had been, that had been sort of promised during the campaign would come to fruition and, and, do, and be done well. Well, Bravo Company was slated to deploy in this interstitial area between when the president took office and when all those reviews came out. And so they went over before the surge. There are, they, a, lot of, a lot of the men think that they were part of the surge, but they're actually a pre-part of the surge. And they were sent, and I can't, it, for anybody who's listening who's been in the military or knows the military, I still am almost in disbelief when, when I say this, uh, that I found out that 4th Brigade went to Afghanistan without a mission, which is blasphemy in, in the military. Mm-hmm. They went almost, almost as a sop to our allies, our, our European uh, NATO and NATO allies and ISAF allies um, who, were, who were also in, a, in it with us in that war, they were sent almost as a way of saying, hey, look, America's still here. We're still paying attention. Give us a minute. We're going to surge over there. But here's a brigade that's going to that's gonna show that, you know, almost like a, you put your chip on the, on the table for an ante. And 4th Brigade went over with the whole purpose of doing training missions which is they were supposed to just train, uh, train Afghan police and Afghan uh, army. Well, Bravo Company was part of, of, this, of this 
um, brigade. They went over there. They did some of this training mission for a little while. But war has an odd way of of changing changing well laid plans. And for a brigade that didn't have any well laid plans, um, plans were made for Bravo Company. There was a unit that wasn't quite performing that that well, according to. Um, many people I spoke with who were in the Argandab Valley and they really wanted to find a way to swap them out and put 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 another unit in there but man there's it's impossible to find a spare unit sitting around that doesn't have a mission mm. well <laughs> Bravo company was part of uh, of a battalion that was in 4th Brigade they didn't have a mission to hand and so they were tasked with going into the Argandab and doing some sort of essentially pre-surge combat and that's the way that a company full of well-trained American paratroopers found themselves in combat with the Taliban. They found themselves in combat with the Taliban, not through any planning, but because it just sort of worked out. And, um, and I include all that in the book because I think it's so important to answer those questions for, for men and women who have served overseas. What was the point? How did you end up there? And sometimes the answer is, well, it just kind of happened. I mean, so you think it matters for soldiers that they kind of understand the strategic importance of their particular mission? Or do you think that matters after they come home? I think it can both matter to them and not matter. There's also, there, war is so filled with paradoxes and, uh, and, and things that are, that are totally different that live together. And talking to, talking to the soldiers from Bravo Company, and also just over the past decade covering, covering veterans and the Department of Veterans Affairs, you know, asking people, was it worth it? Are you, are you glad you did it? Like, or do you care about, uh, about the ultimate end state? And, you know, soldiers and Marines and sailors, Coast Guardsmen, Airmen, they all care about the sort of ultimate strategic ends of a, of a deployment. But at the same time, they're just there for that deployment. They're there for doing the right thing for their unit, the men and women on their left and right. And they want to do what they're told to do as best as they can do it. And, you know, talking to people from Bravo Company, there's, I mean, I talked to one man, Sergeant Alex Hargi, and Sergeant Hargi left his legs in Afghanistan. Uh, it was the deployment after the Bravo Company deployment. Um, he lost his legs in the Argandab Valley, deploying to about the same spot. And years later, he harbors no ill will toward, uh, toward the Taliban for taking his legs. They were just doing their job, he said, um, even though his job was uh, to do his damnedest to try to kill them at all times. But uh, after it was over, it was over. And now uh, Sergeant Hargi, Alex, um, he sees his mission as having done what he was supposed to do while he was there. Mm -hmm. And I talked to him when, when Kabul fell, um, last year. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, he said, essentially peace does come. And there was no way to expect that, um, that, you know, that Afghanistan would, uh, would become something in, in his, you know, what he, whatever he wanted, he was a Sergeant, you know, like he was, he was, he was just a soldier. Um, but he, um, he was not happy with the way that that it finally ended up, and it's sometimes not the fact that not the fact that peace does come, but the way in which peace eventually comes can 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 cause some of these men and women who served uh, distress. So, I mean, you were part of the counterinsurgency in Iraq. You also did some training in Afghanistan as well, so you saw you know some of the things uh, playing out there. In this book, you got to go very deep into, you know, one of the missions that's part of this overall counterinsurgency strategy. Why did it play out so differently 
in these two countries, at least according to you know sort of what you saw and the, the research you've done? Well, the anybody who served in the military in the mid 2000s will know the word coin counterinsurgency, uh, and coin was the coin was the thing by which generals stars rose or they fell. It was the thing when you when you got out of uh, officer candidate school or you got out of boot camp, you went and picked up the the Army and Marine Corps coin manual and you carried it around with you as if it were some kind of catechism or missile or something, right? Like that was that was the way we were going to win this war and. Uh, and it was doing a pretty good job in Iraq at the time. Um, it was, you know, it's this whole, to, to, to summarize it as best you can, a hearts and minds strategy to build up things, uh, to provide, uh, to provide projects, to provide goodwill and to, um, it's essentially to fight, to fight the, to fight the bad guys, whoever they might be by being on the good guys team. And it worked in Iraq. Um, at the time things were getting calm. I mean, combined I with overwhelming force well, in the streets though, too. I was just about to say there's there's a there's a little bit that uh, that comes with uh, being being a good guy and carrying around a coin manual and bags full of money that help, which is having tons and tons of young American uh, men and women with uh, with machine guns and. Iraq, you know, it, it, it seemed to be calming down at the time because there was, uh, you know, the, there were all these projects and things that were happening, but also the, the, the local sheikhs, they wanted, they wanted to turn things around. But Iraq is, I mean, it's a fundamentally different country than Afghanistan and it almost seems, it almost seems like preposterous to have to say that out loud, you know, uh, because, but you know, those two, those two countries have been y sort of yoked together in some ways because of the 20 years of conflict, but Iraq is is a country that has a, um, you know, lots, lots of uh, well, well-paved roads, uh, central government, the central government presence everywhere um, has had for for decades, and so to reassert sort of a supremacy of a central government, um, a, a legitimate, uh, at least what was perceived as being a, a legit, legitimate central government, helped to help to create a, a a place where peace could could come. Now, years later, of course, that fell apart and uh, ISIS would storm in there. Um, and there's a very, very good argument to be made that COIN, uh, in, in fact, just pro provided a pause to all the war that was happening and allowed ISIS to sweep in. But in Afghanistan, the, 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 it's a much more decentralized government. The, the, the federal government does not have a large presence in people's lives. There's not an easy way to, to project power from the central government. And in fact, a lot of, uh, a lot of Afghans uh, would, would rather never see somebody from the central government uh, in, the, in their lives. And so to, to take what were seeming like successes at the time in Iraq and try to transpose those or whatever upon, uh, upon Afghanistan um, seemed to, to most everyone I spoke with, even those who, who put together the coin manual, said it would, it's a fool's errand to try to do that and to, to try to make Afghanistan, uh, to remake it in the image of Iraq or something is almost, it's almost too, too, too preposterous to say out loud. Yeah. We're talking with Ben Kessling, Midwest correspondent with The Wall Street Journal, about his new book, Bravo Company, in Afghanistan Deployment and its Aftermath. We'd love to hear from you if you're a veteran of these wars, Afghanistan or Iraq. What was your experience like coming home? Have you had the support that you need in the community for healing and kind of mental health support? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Uh, oh, man, uh, I got a comment that came in from uh, Aaron 
saying, thank you for today's guest. I did not serve, but lost my childhood best friend, Sergeant David Caruso, who was a force recon Marine killed in Fallujah 18 years ago yesterday. I'll always have this wonder around questions of what if he came home? Who would he be? These stories and interviews help tremendously, especially with such an insightful guest. Um, thank you for that comment, Aaron. And I'm our, our best to Sergeant David Caruso. Uh, ben, I want to return to Afghanistan and this place, the Argandab Valley, where Bravo Company goes. I actually have a hard time imagining what it looks like. Like, is it fields? Like, what do the roads look like? Like, kind of take us there a little bit so we can understand, you know, as these guys are arriving and setting up in a radish field, uh, what they're seeing. Well, the Argandab Valley. Well, let's say Afghanistan is well known for one particular crop, at least over the past few years since the Americans have been there, which is poppy, right? Like, uh, there was efforts of poppy eradication because of, of of the illicit drug trade and all that. Well, down in Argandab Valley, they wouldn't want to waste that farmland on some garbage poppy because they grow the most glorious pomegranates in the world, probably. And they also have grapes. They also they have um, the love, just lovely orchards and lush areas where this stuff can grow. In the in the summertime, there have you have these overhanging boughs of orchards. You have canals dug through for irrigation purposes. You have. Um, the equivalent of trellises for grapevines, but those trellises are made out of mounds. And um, so you have this area that's in the summertime grown over with greenness and lushness and, the, you know, the wonder of orchards that have been that have been in place for, for decades, uh, if not centuries. In the wintertime, a lot of that stuff's not there. A lot of that is has, has yet to yet to come out. And um, Bravo Company, they uh, they first went to Afghanistan and to the Argandab Valley, uh, and you know first of all, Afghanistan is a place where there's there's wherever wherever you might happen to go, you're going to find a completely different environment, right? Mm-hmm. So in Kandahar, you have this lushness and this and the, the, these these fields that can be grown. Well, you know, go a couple a uh, couple hundred miles to uh, to the west, go out into Helmand, and you'll have desert. Um, go up to the north. You'll have mountainous regions. Uh, it's 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 a land where uh, it's like saying, "Hey, tell me what America looks like." Well, you know, like <laughs> California looks a lot different than uh, than than Nebraska, right? Um, but where these guys were in the winter time, you have these canals, but you don't have stuff growing. And when they arrived in in Argandab Valley, they arrived there in the winter time. And there's, as anybody who has followed the war should know that there are fighting seasons in Afghanistan. And in the winter time, uh, a lot of times there's, there's a break taken. And when uh, when Bravo Company arrived in the Argandab, there was a, a sort of a lull in the fighting, and um, there wasn't a whole lot happening. But then, as springtime came around, and as things started growing again. Um, uh, an infantryman will will tell you that undergrowth is undergrowth can be the bane of their existence. Trees can be the bane of their existence because it provides cover and concealment for something that um, that an opponent wants to do. And in this fight that that the men from Bravo Company found themselves in in these orchards in this lush area is they didn't find themselves in firefights. And it's one of the things I document in the book that's so important to realize is the deployment brought a almost unbearable amount of stress and anxiety. 
the men did not have a chance to go face to face, uh, sort of the mano a mano shootout that you imagine when you first join boot camp and think you're going to go to war. No, these guys instead, they walked every day through these areas where the Taliban or whomever, maybe allies of the Taliban, maybe it was just farmers who wanted them to get the hell out of their country, were burying IEDs in the ground. And so every patrol was, instead of waiting for a firefight to start, was waiting to see who might step on an IED first. And that so, they experienced that for months. If that's the kind of fight they're in, why are they patrolling? Like, what are they getting out of the patrolling? Because in, in the military, it's a truism. It's an, it's an absolute positive axiom is that the only way to have a good defense is to have an offense. And as soon as any infantry unit goes into a new spot, wherever that might be, maybe it's just for, for a couple days if they're out on patrol or they're setting up a new, a new forward operating base or a FOB, is as soon as you take care of the basics, you start going out on patrol. Because if you aren't out on patrol and walking around, you're not just going to hide away from stuff. You can't just put your head, you know, put your head under a rock and hope that nothing happens. That's just going to allow whoever's out there to encroach closer upon, <laughs> upon your base or wherever you're at. So if they aren't out there patrolling every day in these areas, there's just going to be more IEDs. There's going to be more chance for the Taliban to have freedom of movement. There's going to be less presence of the U.S. military. Now, if you're asking why were they out there? Well, you know, why, why go out there? That's a question for you know, for, for, the strate- for the strategic folks say, hey, what, what was the ultimate goal of being in that area? But for a company that's deployed to the Argandab Valley at the time, their job is to get out there and try to push back that ever encroaching threat upon them and to try to do whatever they can to bring, uh, bring peace and bring control into that valley. And for a while, the men from Bravo Company were able to do that. They were able to slowly talk more and more to the locals. To, to clear out some of these IEDs, to, to make some headway. Um, and they were making headway until, uh, until they weren't anymore, until the casualties started, started coming in the spring. Yeah. We're talking with Ben Kessling. He's the Midwest correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, also a combat veteran of the Marines. Uh, his new book is Bravo Company, in Afghanistan Deployment and Its Aftermath. Uh, did you serve in Afghanistan or Iraq? What was your experience like coming home? No, it can be hard to share. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. Email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking with Ben Kessling, veteran himself, now Midwest correspondent with The Wall Street Journal. He's got a new book called Bravo Company in Afghanistan Deployment and Its Aftermath. I want to talk about the mindset of the soldiers as they're in this deployment in Afghanistan. I thought maybe we could start it off by having you read a little passage from the book. I think it's pages 60, 61 um, about, about this. Yes, let me turn to it here. Um, okay. Yeah, soldiers can be perplexed. If Got it. Soldiers can be perplexed when they talk to a civilian and try to explain that just because a person was in the military, it doesn't mean they ever went to a combat zone. And a soldier is likely further astonished when they have to explain to a civilian that just because someone was deployed to a combat zone, it doesn't mean they actually saw combat of any kind. This is one of the basic dividing lines between soldier and civilian. The soldier has a genuine appreciation for what it means to be in combat. The combat infantryman badge is the only way to prove a soldier actually did what people think they all do. Go to war and shoot at the enemy. During those long months of preparing for deployment, the young guys of Bravo Company longed for war, in part so that they too could be part of the club. It's that way across much of the military part of the zeitgeist of units that thrive on combat, like Army paratroopers or Marines. In fact, the Marine Corps makes a big deal about praying for war, actually imploring the Almighty to allow for the worst shit imaginable to happen so they can go take part in it. It's the same feeling for a soldier, especially a new soldier, who doesn't have that CIB yet. Down deep, it becomes an animal desire to kill another human being shoot him right in the chest, or, better yet, in the face. That gets to the heart of what's taught in those months of training for a deployment. Through all the training, field exercises, rifle ranges, and qualification badges, it ultimately boils down to one thing. Kill. I mean, I personally find that, like, actually quite difficult to hear. I I think I, I understand it, but I also... Do you, like, how did you square that with all of your life up to that point? I think that's kind of the question about divinity school. And mm-hmm. I was like, how, did, how did you square those two things? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, uh, Alexis. And I think that trying to come up with an answer for that is going to be a lifelong task. Um, and I suspect, uh, I suspect that uh, when my time comes and I'm uh, standing at the pearly gates, I'm going to have some answers <laughs> to have to, to, to have to give. Um, and I think that, I think that a lot of soldiers, a lot of Marines, a lot of people who serve in combat, um, have to, they wonder that if you ask them, I mean, yeah, they, they might, they might, um, with bluster say there's no question about it. Um, but I think that, you know, maybe it might take a beer or two to loosen them up, but I think that you're going to get an honest answer from someone about how do you square that? How do you square what it is that you joined up to do? with humanity 
And yeah, I mean, there's an aspect of it of, of doing the right, you know, doing the right thing for your country and serving your country and all that. But there's also an aspect of it that I don't think that we can ever fully square. And it's part of the human experience to know part of the human experience isn't to conquer uh, being a hypocrite or to never do things that are against the, the, the grain of the philosophy that you espouse. Part of the human experience is to, is to realize that you're going to fail, you're going to stumble, you're going to be a hypocrite and trying to figure out why that is and to try to square that away and not do it in the future. And, you know, um, you asked me that question and it, um, uh, I say in the, in the author's note of this book that one of the things that I've learned about, um, about the veteran experience and about what it's like to live the rest of your life after you take off the uniform, because that's not the end of it, right? That's not, you come home and then you're still, you're a citizen soldier, you're a citizen, you're, you're a human, your father, your son, your daughter, uh, your, your wife when you come home. And what I've learned is that our lives are continual and ongoing. And the best that we can hope for is to try to answer the questions like you just asked of answer them honestly and to realize that a life that you've lived honorably up to this point can always be despoiled. And at the same time, a life that is yet to find honor or something that you have regrets or you have questions about, you can yet bring honor to that life. And I think that that is such an important thing that as veterans and folks who are asking themselves that question or folks who ask veterans that question, just as you did, that we understand that it's not, we're not ever done. <laughs> We're always growing and we're always trying to figure that stuff out and to tackle those questions with honesty and to walk humbly before our God and our fellow man is, uh, that's, that's the only answer I can really give to, to that question. Well, and you know, I think the other question that, that grows out of that passage in the experience of Bravo company, especially in relation to the type of kind of ghostly warfare that you're kind of talking about where they're sort of patrolling, uh, IEDs are exploding. They're not actually fighting people in that way that they, they imagined. Do you think the army did slash does enough to prepare people for these, this, this type of combat? I mean, did, did they know that that would be how it was? And once they realized it did, like who was there to help people process that? Mm -hmm. I mean, the military does not, the military does a fantastic job preparing for the combat. The military does a horrible job preparing us for combat. Um, it does both of those. Again, another one of the paradoxes of the military. Um, these men from Bravo Company were trained exquisitely in the art of maneuver warfare uh, as paratroopers should do. And in fact, there's a, there's a, uh, a point in the, in the book where they do get into a firefight with some Taliban and they perform perfectly. It's almost as if they, um, they sort of plugged it in an algorithm and ran it and the solution came out on the other end. And they do an excellent job in combat because they have prepared to fire their weapons and maneuver on the enemy and kill them on the battlefield. They've done a great job of that. But preparing for something 
not just the tactics that go into an IED fight, like how, how are you going to try to defeat these IEDs um, or to find them, but the mental wear and tear, the strain that comes with these things. I talk about uh, at the time in Afghanistan, there's, there's, this, there's this unit in the military that is its entire job is to, is to defeat IEDs, to come up with ways to, to, to get around them, to find them, to detect them, and to defuse them so they don't blow up on soldiers. Well, at the time and when these guys deployed to Afghanistan, all the focus was on Iraq and they hadn't yet sort of switched gears. The, the joint IED defeat organization was still firmly focused on Iraq and hadn't looked at Afghanistan yet. And there's still a lot to be done to try to figure out how to defeat booby traps. And that's, I mean, that's been going on for, uh, for, for years, for centuries. And um, one of the things that the men in Bravo did, uh, one guy had his wife send him a Spider-Man fishing pole, their kid's Spider-Man fishing pole. And that way he could cast you know, cast a weight out into the unknown and reel it in. And if nothing blew up, then there were no trip wires. So the greatest, mightiest force in the planet for, for combat arms um, was reduced to using a Spider-Man fishing pole uh, in order to try to go out on patrol safely every day. God. You know, I want to talk about when they came back. You know, they had this really difficult uh, experience there for all the reasons that you you've noted here and the the losses that they're they're they sustained. What's the experience been like? You know, you did follow these people for ten years. Did you find that there was an an arc of healing that most people followed? Did were there just you know the differences are so vast between the experiences of people and and their minds and hearts that that it was hard to find through lines? Like, tell us a little more about the experience of coming home. Yeah, and I, I think that's I think it's a fantastic question, and one of the reasons why, you know, write, why I wrote a book about a company of soldiers. I could have written about Afghanistan writ large, or veterans with a capital V or something, right? But those are all nameless, faceless entities. Or one you famous guy, you know, yeah, one famous right, veteran, right. Um, but I no, I wrote about this company that I just you know happened through almost like <laughs> sheer luck and divine intervention to have uh, to have come upon their reunion in 2019, and what better unit to write about than a unit that presents itself to you almost randomly? And I and in that one unit, um, I found all this this treasure trove of of just of information, of feeling, of the experience, and it's because of looking at these individual stories that. I was able to find some of these generalities with uh, the way experiences um, for for all veterans, and when I I talk about, I often talk about the veteran template, okay, or the veteran stereotype, which we all know it because we see it when we go to the movies uh, or when we uh, or we see something that barely scratches the surface of what experience and war is like. Um, young man or young woman. Uh, comes from a small town. They're pretty good, nice kid. They go to boot camp. Oh, that's kind of weird. Then they go to combat. Oh man, I see some horrible stuff. Maybe I get hurt um, and come home and I'm broken. Boom. That's the trajectory, right? Mm -hmm. But that is not the trajectory. That is one. That's one horrible stereotype <laughs> that doesn't tell the story of even somebody who goes through that process. And so, by talking to the men of Bravo Company and also talking to uh, people who are around them. Fathers who lost sons, wives who lost um, lost their spouse. Um, I'm able to sort of see the 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 ways that we try we we, we try to negotiate 
life as a veteran, but we can oftentimes do it as free-floating entities. And one of the amazing things about the reunion that occurred with Bravo Company is they came together not as free-floating entities, but as men who were part of a team. They came together as Bravo Company 10 years later. They didn't come together as individuals. And I think in looking at any veteran story and telling any veteran story or writing about the Department of Veterans Affairs or whatever, it's so important to realize that individual stories matter. And in that individual story, you're really able to find universal themes. And I think that something that in this book, Bravo Company, that civilians who have never been there and want to understand it, and also veterans who have been there and better want to understand their own experience, can through the specifics and the, the very, very, very specific details of life can see their own life reflected in that. And that's one thing I really wanted to do with this book. Yeah. Let's get one of those experiences. Hey, Bill in South San Francisco, welcome to the show. Well, good morning, everyone. And I was an army medic and I have, well, I was trained in a great deal of a medical background, specifically emergency medicine. I did a year of combat a few months after September 11th. And I want to tell you that every time I stopped at a car accident, when my father was dying and when he was bedridden, or any time I deal with a coworker or any cut or scrape on the work site, all that medical training comes right back to me. And I assess the patient, I look at the scene, I render care, and I do as much follow-up as I can. And I, I respond to those car accidents on 101 and 280, and when the fire department comes and the sheriff or the highway patrol show up, then I just report off what happened does a patient have any allergies or what's the emergency? <laughs> and then I, I take pride as an army medic of disappearing into the background <laughs> and driving off in the Ford. Bill, I, I, I find this so fascinating, though, that you have found a way to like continue doing that service. First aid kit is, in the, uh, is right behind the driver's seat, and I know what I need to pack. Uh, Bill, last last question before we before we let you go. I mean, do you think this is part of your process of kind of processing or metabolizing the experience you had in Afghanistan, or do you think this is just this is who you are and that's who you were when you went in and that's why you were a medic and that's who you are, like helping people out on two eighty? Uh, no, no way. If I wasn't in the army, I wouldn't stop. Mm-hmm. I would just be one of those knuckleheads who gawk and laugh and pull out their cell phones, but instead it's hands across the problem. I'm not looking for guts and glory, and I disappear into the background when the more advanced uh, level of healthcare arrives. Hey, Bill, thanks so much for, for calling in and, uh, and sharing that experience. I appreciate that. I mean, Ben, I, I, I feel like this is... That, that kind of experience, just the singularity of his experience and now the way that he's taken what he learned in the military and, and using it in every day. I mean, it's just like you're saying. It's a, it, it, each story is different. Yeah. And, you know, his, Bill's story is so great um, because, you know, you asked him at the end, would you have done, what would you be like if you hadn't been in the military? Well, again, kind of going back to 
going back to any uh, really effective philosophy or, or outlook on life is there's no way to say, well, what would I have been like if I hadn't done this? Um, because you did it. You're here, right? Like the bill is not, he's not a, a guy who has to think about driving by that, that, um, those wrecks. Um, and what he would have done if he hadn't been in the army. No, man, he was in the army, which is one of the reasons why he stops. And I, I, to say that if he hadn't gone in the army, that he would be a gawker or somebody who drives by, it's just, uh, it's a false proposition, right? Because he chose to be in the army way back when. So he is the type of guy who stops at these things. And I think that this is one of the very cool things about talking with folks, um, and interviewing, interviewing men and women, uh, veterans and talking to the men from Bravo company is if they tell me a story like that, you know, like, like Bill told me I can say hey you know like there you're, you're living in the here and now you're the you're the totality of all your experience so there's no reason to question the what-ifs man you're like you're you are the person who stops to help people because you are you <laughs> and I think that it, it tells you know it tells a lot about the military that they would have trained Bill in a way that he can can still do this and stop but the military also attracted guys like Bill yeah. <laughs> guys who will stop and do that yeah um, you know uh Michael writes in to say, thank you for bringing Ben on. Wish him and the U.S. Marines happy birthday. I know it is the birthday of the Marine Corps. You were supposed to tell me that. A great day. A great day. I thought that was the Marine thing. Um, uh, Michael also writes, I am a part of Elder Warriors, a program that helps vets heal from the soul wounds of PTSD. We conduct a process of listening like Ben has referred to in his opening. Once that kind of trust and listening happens, the wounds, losses, grief, and Moral injury can begin healing. We also work to help civilians own the personal moral responsibility for our warriors. And one of our team is an Iraq Afghanistan vet. Um, I want to give you the chance for for veterans who may be listening out there, Ben. And what else would you say based on the stories that you heard from Bravo Company? How would you want to address them? I think that it was a, that's a great. That is a great letter to get in, and because I, it brings up something I, that I think is also so important for us to talk about as veterans and civilians, is there's a lot of talk of like civilian military divide in this country, right? And um, that fewer and fewer people want to serve, or um, it, all volunteer force is uh, is cre- is creating, you know, is, is is widening that divide. Well, I think it's up to it's up to both civilians and military um, veterans to to break down that divide. Um, it's not, it's it's not it's not civilians' fault for not knowing about the military. I mean, yeah, they should they should know a little bit more about it, know what it is that they're sending uh, people over to fight in their in their name for. But also, veterans in the military have to realize that we're citizen soldiers, and it is incumbent upon us to make sure that that divide is not there. And in telling stories, asking stories, and coming coming to coming to people from a very honest place is a way to break down that divide. And it's so important. And God bless anybody who is, uh, is, is spending their time and talents yeah. and uh, vocation on, on getting those stories. Yeah. We've been talking with Ben Kessling, Midwest correspondent with the Wall Street Journal, about his new book, Bravo Company, in Afghanistan Deployment and its Aftermath. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation. Yeah. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Hyman's Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.